Isaiah. Today we'll do Amos, last week Hosea, next week we'll do Micah, and then uh, when uh, I get back from India, we'll go back to Isaiah again. So uh, my visa came through this week, thank the Lord for that, and I'm uh, glad I, I put the wrong uh, uh, pa- uh, passport number on my application, but it, I thought, what are they going to do about that? They'll probably kick it back to me, but it went through, so um, we're on our way, looks like. So, but, hmm? Yeah, uh, Tim Fuller is uh, going to be my co-laborer uh, at, in India. Tim is already in the Philippines. He's, gonna, he's, he's doing some work there, teaching at a school. Um, and then we'll fly on from Philippines to India and join in the work there. Two conferences in um, East Central India. So uh, appreciate your prayers for uh, the two of us. Book of Amos. Now, uh, being a minor prophet, it's probably a fairly closed book to you. Uh, we don't do much with Deuteronomy, and we don't do much with um, the minor prophets. It's it's odd that we do so little with Deuteronomy because um, the three most often quoted books in the New Testament are um, Psalms, Isaiah, and Deuteronomy. (laughs) And yet we hardly ever do any kind of study from Deuteronomy. Um, Now we're doing Isaiah together. But Amos, goodness sakes, um, what do you do with Amos? Uh, So so here we're going to look at it. Um, The... uh, the theme of the book, as I've, I've given it here, is the lack of true worship and justice in the northern kingdom. The true worship has in some measure um, brought about injustice. Um, you perhaps have read the book, uh, The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. In his opening chapter, he says that no people can rise about, above their view of God. So whatever you think God is, it's going to affect the way you function. You simply cannot be different from the God that you worship. Uh, and so um, that there's Psalm 115, Psalm 136, 135 have the same point. You, you are, you become like what you worship inherently. Are you with me here? So Baal, I, it's, I was reading a book several years ago on, on non-biblical or non-Israelite uh, religion in the ancient Near East. And it said um, there could never be a book like Job written in um, the other cultures. It, it would simply be impossible to do it because the issue would never arise. The issue never arises, why do the righteous suffer? Because righteousness is not that important in non, non, non-Christian, non-Israelite religions. Am I making sense to you? What's critical is the way you do the ritual. If you do the ritual wrong, then the God gets mad at you. Uh, so, so you could. What's the point of the ritual? The ritual is uh, you gotta you gotta stroke the God just right so He'll do what you want for Him, for you. <laughs> so. The point of the ritual is to keep the gods from being uh, being upset with you, uh, and to get them to do what you want. 
in, inherent in idolatry is the notion of trying to, to secure your future by means that you can manipulate. So the gods of the ancient world, I mean, the gods of Dallas, are gods that we can manipulate and control. Um, so Amos is writing to a people who, though they have known the Lord, have had his work on their behalf, have abandoned him in favor of political power, military power, uh, and they think they can find that via the worship of the gods of the ancient Near East. And so all this is working in this book. So the theme here is um, a rebuke of them for their false worship and their and their injustice um, in the uh, uh, in their lives but it's never enough to say what is the theme of a book um, I want you to, to think about the implications of a verse that you know very well 2 Timothy 3.16 yes, you know this very very well uh, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine <coughs> only <coughs> no for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. So there is a theme. There are things that we need to know, doctrine. But there are also things, in light of that, what we learn about God, that we must do. We must be reproved, we must be corrected, and we must be instructed in righteousness. Does this make sense to you? So there is a purpose to the book of Amos. And I conclude that this is the purpose because of the way the, the book is constructed. The book is constructed... It appears as a single sermon. I, I, I'm probably going a little bit beyond what I can expect, what I can really exhaustively demonstrate, but I think it's being res, uh, uh, developed as a sermon, which is to be addressed to the Northern Kingdom, and it starts at a point and ends at a point, and where it ends is where he wants his hearers to end. Does this make sense to you? So the outcome of this is if they will listen, it will give them hope and, and, and desperation. In fact, hope amid desperation. Okay? So the whole point is to drive the northern kingdom to despair so that they will, to despair of themselves, so that they will finally find hope in the Lord, uh, whom they have rejected, by the way. And it does, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's uncannily like the times we live in, and, and we'll see some of that as we go. The, uh, the book is written in the first part of the 8th century B.C. Here I've got a date somewhat in the middle, 767 to 753. Uh, we, we have uh, the same period, notice in chapter 1, verse 1, we have the same period that Hosea is, is ministering in. So, verse 1, the words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa, uh, which he, uh, this is Tekoa, not Tokkoa. That, that's in northern Georgia. This is Tekoa, which is south southeast of Jerusalem. Uh, it's in the general area of Bethlehem. Uh, so uh, Tekoa, which he envisioned in the in the visions concerning Israel in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Jehoash. So we're talking about the same period that we were dealing with in Hosea's uh, ministry. So here we go. The structure of the book, uh, three big parts. You have a superscription, and then one and two, you have oracles against the nations. 
3 to uh, 6, you have seven messages of judgment, and then you have in 7 to 9, visions of judgment and salvation. There'll be five visions that we'll see in that in that passage. So we'll start here with chapters uh, 1 and 2. In verse, th- uh, verse 2, he said, The Lord roars from Zion, and from Jerusalem he utters his voice, and the shepherd's pasture... Uh, gra- <laughs> can't see grounds uh, the, the the shepherd's pasture grounds mourn and the summit of Carmel dries up. God is uttering His voice, and it's a voice of judgment. Now, why? Well, He starts, and again, I say there's a there's a good bit of rhetoric in the book of of Amos. He is developing a case. And getting a hearing from his, from his audience. So he starts with the oracles against the foreign nations. Verse 3. Thus says the Lord. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will not revoke its punishment. And let me stop here. What would the people of Israel be saying? This is the northern kingdom. What would they be saying if God's going to judge Damascus? What's their response going to be? Well, it's about time. Amen. Are you with me? Good. This is great, because Damascus was one of the enemies of the northern kingdom. Uh, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because, and here's the reason, what you'll notice here is the injustice, the unfairness of their treatment of others. Because they threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron, and God's response, verse 4, so... I will send fire upon the house of Hazael. It will consume the citadels of Ben-Hadad. I will also break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avon, him who holds the scepter from Beit Aden. So the people of Aram will go exiled to Kir, says the Lord. Now that's a sample. We have uh, six more of these judgment oracles. They follow the same pattern. Notice there verse one or verse 3, thus says the Lord, and then that uh, for three transgressions and for four, yes? Then you have following that so, or be, because, and then so. So I have the statement of coming judgment on a nation, Damascus in this case, that's followed by uh, the affirmation that there, are, there is sufficient, judge, uh, sufficient reason for the judgment. Then you will have the exact reason, and then you have so. And if you look at verse 6, which is the message against Gaza, so I have, uh, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, because they, they deported the entire population. Verse 7, so, yes? And you can, you can watch these and read them as you go at some point. Verse 9, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they delivered an entire population to Edom. Verse 10, so, are you with me here? We have this all the way through these seven judgment oracles. So I have Damascus that's in the northeast, Gaza that's in the southwest, Tyre that's in the northwest, Edom that's in the the southeast. I have... Verse 13, Ammon, which is also in the southeast. I have in chapter 2, verse 1, Moab, 
which is also in the southeast. <laughs> then four, Judah. Yeah. Right? Yes? You're kind of zeroing in. Yes? He's moving around and zeroing in. When, when he gets to Judah and he pronounces judgment on Judah, what's Israel's response going to be? I, that's good. Boy, those people down there, they're bad. Need to get rid of those folks. <laughs> so rhetorically, Amos is getting a hearing here. They're, they're delighted. You're going to judge Moab and Ammon? Have at it. Boy, this is good. Going to get Gaza tired? Wow, this is great. Great news. Need that news. Until he gets to chapter three, uh, 2, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke its judgment, because where is the so? After verse 6, where is the so? We have, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions and for four, because so. Six times. Where is the so? It's in the rest of the book. If they thought it was right, let, let's go back to chapter 1 just a moment. For God to judge Damascus because they threshed Gilead with, Gilead is part of Israel, threshed Gilead with implements of iron. If they thought it was right and just for God to judge Gaza, verse 6, because they deported an entire population to deliver it up to Edom. If they thought, thought it was just for God, verse 9, to judge Tyre because they delivered up an entire population to Edom. I, I, uh, 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 and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. If they thought, verse 11, it was right to judge Edom because he pursued his brother with the sword while he stifled his companion. If, verse 13, they thought it was right for God to judge Ammon because they ripped open pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their borders. If they thought it was right, in chapter 2, verse 1, to judge Moab because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. If they thought, verse 4, it was right for God to judge Judah because they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, then how can the southern kingdom escape? And if they have approved all the other judgments, they have to approve this one too. Or B confronted with the fundamental illogic of their position. You follow this? He has to take away all hope from them. There can be no hope left. He has to bring them to despair so that they will seek the only place where hope can come from. So chapter 2, then verse 6, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because... They sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. These who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless. I haven't got enough land. I've got to get land. i got to get land from your head. Wait a minute. Let me wash your hair so I can get the land that you have on your head. I've got to have everything. I've got to leave you bereft. They turn aside the way of the humble, and a man and his father resort to the same girl in order to present profane my holy name. 
on garments taken as pledge. Garments taken as pledge, they, when you make a loan, you, you, you have to have some kind of collateral, yes? All right. So for the very poor, the only collateral they had was their garment. And you use that to profane the name of the Lord. Um, on garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar. So this is a religious act. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been uh, who have been fined. So you you take a fine from somebody in 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 goods. It would be wine, and you use that. Yes. What's the time frame of this compared to Isaiah? It's yeah, it's it's very similar. Uh, It's about fifty or sixty years earlier than Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah sometime around 700 B.C. So, um, but there's no so here. We've been led to expect a so. I've never thought this thought before this morning, frankly. Uh, therefore, it's probably wrong. But, <laughs> but the rest of the book is the so. So what, what is God going to do about all this? In all the other messages to the nations, he gave a so. That is what I'm going to do about it. But he puts that off. So I turn then to, uh, let me move on here past the uh, oracles of judgment to the, 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 um, uh, the three sins of Israel, 2, 6 to 8, rebellion against the Lord, um, who is their deliverer and benefactor. Throughout the prophets and indeed throughout the Old Testament, you get the story of Israel revisited at various points, most of the time to assure the people of God that God is not, has not abandoned his historical work. Um, there are places where the psalmist, where the prophet, uh, Habakkuk, uh, now I know you've been in Habakkuk recently, Yes. Uh, turn to Habakkuk. It's just a few books to the right. <laughs> Nahum, Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Um, is appealing to the history of the Lord against Judah. This is a lot later. This is down around 600 B.C. So we're a century and a half later on uh, when we're in Habakkuk. The oracle of Habakkuk, the prophet, saw, How long, O Lord, will I call out for help, and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore justice comes out perverted. Always before... In the history of Israel, God has acted to deal with this kind of thing. But in Habakkuk's day, it's not happening. So he's appealing. Look look what you did in the past. Do it now. And God says, okay, I'll do it now. I'm going to bring the Babylonians and judge you. And Habakkuk says, no, wait a minute. <laughs> They're more wicked than we are. <laughs> are you with me here? So you appeal to the history of what God has done in the past to call him to act that way again in the future. But Amos turns that on its head. Let's go back to Amos 2. 
verse 9. Don't have a so at this point. I have a yet. And here yet is, is like the word nevertheless in this case. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before him. Though his height was like the height of the cedars, and he was strong as the oaks, I even destroyed its fruit above and its root below. It was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you into the, in the wilderness for 40 years, that you might take possession of the land of the Amorite. Then I raised up some of your sons to be prophets, and some of your young men to be Nazarites. Is not this so, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord? Have I, not, have I told you the right story? And, of course, the answer will have to be, well, yes, you've told us the right story. Then what's God going to do? Is he going to destroy the Amorite again? Is he going to raise up prophets? Verse 11, I'm sorry, verse 12. But you. And watch, watch in your text. I am, I'm reading from the NASV here. I'm not sure how the other translations handle this, but it will be similar to this. Whenever you see this, but you, it's, it's usually, in Amos, it's usually contrasted with what I have done, but you. I have done this, but you. I have done this, but you. And he does this over and over. So verse 12, but you made the Nazarites drink wine. See, there it is. You shouldn't drink wine. Amen? <laughs> Only if you're a Nazarite. Only if you're... Yeah. The, the point of this is the Nazarite has taken such a vow that he has is, he is attained the same kind of sanctity as the high priest. The fulfillment of the Nazarite vow re- requires the same sacrificial ritual that is done for ordaining a high priest. And so you, but, but key to the Nazarite vow is abstinence from everything that belongs to the vine. Uh, no raisins, no grapes. This is not about avoiding alcohol, this is about avoiding everything that belongs to the vine. Are you with me here? And it's not bad enough that they don't honor the Nazarite's vow, they make him do the worst thing, that is, going all the way, not just make him eat a grape here or there, but you make them eat, drink wine. Um, uh, And you commanded the prophets, saying, you shall not prophesy. Behold, I am weighted down beneath you as a wagon is weighted down when filled with sheaves. This is God talking. Thank you. Appreciate you. I was wondering how I could emphasize this best. That was the best way to do it. God is weighted down under under their sins. So verse... 14, flight. Well, here is, here is now the beginning of the soul. Flight will perish from the, from the uh, swift. The stalwart will not strengthen his power, nor the mighty man save his life. He who grasps the bow will not stand his ground. The swift of foot will not escape, nor will he who rides on the horse save his life. Even the bravest among the warriors will flee naked in that day, declares the Lord. Wait a minute, what happened to the history of God's work in in Israel's life? We just read it there in verses 9 and 10. What happened to that history? 
normally you tell the story of the past <coughs> to assert as a prophet, to assert that what God has done in the past, he's going to do in the future. Are you with me here? It's a model of what he's going to do in the future. So he refers to it for you to understand this. The trouble is now Amos is going to turn salvation history inside out. He's going to turn it on its head so that salvation history is the ground for judgment. Let me take you to chapter 3 for a moment. In fact, let's just go to chapter 3. Um, let's get over here. 3, 1 to 15. Hear the word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen, the NASV reads, and that that's probably an accurate interpretation. The Hebrew text says simply, I, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Let me stop about that and say, to know somebody is more than to know algebra. Yes? Um, to know somebody means to enter into a relationship with them. Does this make sense to you? So the NASV is probably right in reading. I'm sorry, is this NASV or what is this? Yeah, it's NASV. Um, it's probably right, but the point of this is, uh, is even deeper than that. You only have I known. That's the only family on earth that as a family God has entered into relationship with. Now what's the effect of that? Well, verse 2, you only have I known among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. If I'm going to judge Damascus and Tyre and Moab and Ammon and Edom and, yes, Gaza, you think you're going to escape? You're the people that I love. I can't let you escape. We were with our grandchildren, four of our grandchildren. When was that? Last week? Was it just last week? Okay. I could, boy, it's, it's gone from my mind. Uh, and uh, one, of, one of our granddaughters, you would not know about this at all. None of you would know about this. But there are children who are just kind of very, very confident in themselves. You know what I'm talking about? We have, well, she's adopted, so you can't blame me for this. <laughs> uh, um, uh, but she's very, 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 very confident about herself. And I... I finally had to really lower the boom on her one, one day. And I, I made her go to her room. <laughs> Terrible. Have to go to her room. And I only let, we got Amini. And I just left her in there a few minutes and I went in and I said, now, I did this because I love you and I can't let you treat me this way. I love you too much to let you go on. I don't do, I don't send any other children in the neighborhood to their room. And if I'm going to send other children to their room, I better send my own to their Am I making sense to you? How old is she? She's how old is six? six? Is, I thought she was a little older than that. Oh, boy, she's got the confidence of a 16-year-old. I, I, I hope they get this in control before she reaches 16. <laughs> the, the, the greater issue here is if, God has, if God's going to judge nations that, he really doesn't have a relationship with, 
and he loves Israel because he is a loving and righteous God, then he must deal with them. You follow this? The salvation history entails their judgment. You can't have relationship with God without judgment being carried out. You will, I hope, be making the right connection at this point. You can't have relationship with God either without judgment being carried out. But it's carried out how? On the cross. cross. And now his discipline in our lives is not because we are bad, it's because we are his. Are you with me? And we're immature, and he he wants us to grow up, and we will. So Hebrews 12, 4 to 11, a very, very important passage. You need to study this. We've been through this passage on several occasions, so I won't go there today. But the point is, the so means here for three transgressions of Israel, even for four, I will not hold back because... They have engaged in, we hasn't even gotten into this in, in full yet, they've engaged in injustice that is, that is derivable from their religion because they have abandoned him for Baal, of all things. And so he must judge them. And that judgment's going to be harsh. So, going on, chapter 4, uh, verses 1 to 3 there is an oracle against the cows of Bashan. <laughs> what is so bad about the cows? Well, pardon? Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, in my early years, I, I was given a, a copy of uh, Homer's Iliad, and it just, it just captured me the first night I got it. I started reading it, could hardly put it down. But one of the things that, what's the matter, Jim? What are you laughing at? Well, I know it, but not everybody has to be. But I just, I couldn't, it was such a good story, I couldn't put it down. But one of the things I marked in my mind, they kept referring to very, very beautiful goddesses and women as cow-eyed. And I thought, I don't think I'd ever say that to an American woman. (laughs) You wouldn't say it to Jan. Uh, but then in India a few years ago, we were walking down the street, and I saw a cow's eyes. And they really are beautiful. Uh, am I making sense to you? Uh, these cows of Bashan, this is how Amos is referring to the women of the northern kingdom. So chapter 4, they're cows, they're sleek, they're well-fed, they're cared for, they're taken. Are you with me here? So hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor and crush the needy. Uh, it's always wrong to oppress the poor. It is a matter of justice that you do not oppress the poor. Am I making sense to you? But, it's, but the poor are not righteous because they are poor. The poor are judgeable. They are open to judgment equally with the, with the wealthy. It's just that the poor are people who are easy to exploit in most cultures. And so we're not here in, an, uh, in a liberation theology mode saying, well, every, all poor people are righteous, all rich people are wicked, and therefore we must get rid of the rich and make the poor powerful, and then they become wicked and oppress the poor again. All right. So that's the, that's the fly in the ointment of that whole approach. But um, 
uh, you say to your husbands, bring now that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness. Behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks. And the last of you with fish hooks. You will go out through the breaches and the walls, each one straight before her, and you will be cast to Harmon. What in the world does that mean? The word in Hebrew means uh, utter destruction. It's the word group that describes what Israel must do to the Canaanites in the conquest. Uh, Therefore, now he turns to the religious, specifically religious side of all this. Enter Bethel. What is Bethel? Yeah. What? 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 Why? Why would he mention Bethel here? The golden calf. The golden calf. Uh, the, this is where Jeroboam put up the golden calves in the north and in the south. This is Jeroboam the first. We're in the days of Jeroboam the second here. But enter Bethel and, dis- and transgress and Gilgal. Multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning. There's very religious people. Bring your sacrifices every morning. Your tithe every three days. Offer a thank offering also from what is leavened from what is leavened and, and proclaim free will offerings make them known so, for so you love to do you sons of Israel well they're very religious people and it would be very hard to tell that they were somehow out of harmony with God because of their religiosity and they named the name of God in a polytheistic setting it's always appropriate to have Yahweh and Baal and Astarte and Because God's for you, these others might get mad at you. Maybe Yahweh will do something for you. And if Yahweh's mad at you, maybe one of these gods will do something for you. So they're syncretistic, which means that they have essentially abandoned God. I had a hand in the back just a moment. Oldridge? Yeah, in, uh, in my book it says, in my Bible it says every three years. Years, not three days. Yeah. Uh, there's the word, the word uh, days and the word years can be very similar under certain circumstances and depend on, on how you what decision you make about what's what's going on there. Yes ma'am. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, the division between the northern northern and southern kingdom came in nine thirty BC. Um, and uh, almost immediately Jeroboam the first uh, who who rebelled against Solomon? Uh, Jeroboam the first set up the golden calf, not to serve Baal, but he set up the calf immediately uh, to be a, to be a reminder of of the Exodus and so on. He did it at Bethel, where Jacob had dreamed of, of the Lord. This is now the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Jeremiah, Genesis twenty eight, uh, but. Just a few decades later, King Ahab came on the throne and, ter- and brought in Baalism with a vengeance. So we're after Ahab then. Jeroboam's grandfather, Jehu, had killed off the house of, of Ahab and had gotten rid of some of the Baal worship, but not all of it. So they, they're still infected by this. So it's, yeah, it's horribly wicked stuff. Um, the, uh, let me move on then. The, the, everybody in the society is involved in all of this, both the false worship and the injustice. Does this make sense to you? This is not just um, some of the folks. Everybody 
is engaged in this in one way or another. So chapter 4, 4 to 13, we've kind of looked at. Chapter 5, 1 to 17, it's past 12 already. Folks, I'm sorry, I'm not going to get through this today. 5, 1 to 17, he has some exhortations. Let me just point this out to you in the middle of his message. Chapter 5, verse 6, seek the Lord that you may live or he will break forth like a fire. He's leading them to despair so that he can bring them to hope. Finally, there are other exhortations. Um, one is in chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. Seek good and not evil that you may live, and thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you, just as you have said. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice. By the way, therefore, uh, evil, good, and justice are not open to definition. God has given a definition. They have tried to redefine it. Does this sound familiar? They have tried to redefine each, but God says, no, I get to define it. You must define it the way I do. So, uh, hate, evil, love, good, establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Judah, or Joseph. Chapter um, 5, verse 24, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, and he refers to the history, he reverts to history again. Here is the history, but that leads us then, and let me go very quickly through the rest of this. Chapter, oh, here, Beds of Ivory. Uh, There are, in the uh, end of chapter, in chapter 6, we we have the woe and a judgment speech. Um, He challenges them in 6.2. Go look at the other nations that have fallen. Are you better than they? Are you more powerful than they? You really think you can stand when I send judgment? Chapter 7 now, um, we have the first of the five visions. God showed Amos what he planned to do. And it was in the form of a locust swarm that, that went in and, and ate everything. And, Jake, and, and, and Amos' response is, Lord, Israel is so weak. How can they stand? And the Lord said, okay, this I will not do. Showed him a second vision of, um, uh, of judgment. Verse 4, uh, contending with them by fire. Amos says, but Lord, they're so weak. How can, how can Jacob stand? Okay, this I won't do either. There is an interlude in verse 10 in which we get a little bit of history of, of Amos in the story here. Amos was not a prophet. He was a farmer. But God sent him up here, and even though the people in the northern kingdom told him not to prophesy, even important, powerful people in the northern kingdom said, don't prophesy. He said, I can't, I can't stop. You must hear the word of the Lord. We return to the visions in chapter 8, verse 1. Um, See, I've lost my place here. Ah, there. In chapter 8, come to another vision, verse 1. There was a basket of summer fruit. The summer fruit, it's hot. Yes, summer fruit is only good for a short time. You can't leave it out in the heat very long. And Judah and and Israel must be judged. We move on to chapter 9. 
The fifth vision comes in chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, the Lord was standing beside the altar. He's going to destroy them. And he's going to destroy them so thoroughly, verses 2, three and, uh, two and 3 and 4. Though they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take hold of them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide in the summit of Carmel, I will search uh, them out and, and take them from there. And though they conceal themselves from my sight to the floor of the sea, from there I will command the serpent. Do you see the rhetorical nature of this? It's, yeah, in verse 4. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the, the sword that it slay them. And I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. He's driving them to despair. Verse 7. Are you not as the sons of, e- of Ethiopia to me? Do you think that, there's, that, that your privilege gives you privilege? Do you not realize that your privilege gives you responsibility? Yes, I brought you up from Egypt, he says. But I also brought the Philistines from Kaftor and the Arameans from Kir, verse 7. You think you're unusual? Yes, you are unusual, but not in ways that you think. So judgment must come. Verse 8, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy from the face of the earth. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. Now, why not? And this is what this quote, series of quotations is about here. Um, the transition from verse 10 to verse 11 is the most abrupt and surprising in the entire book. The sword of judgment gives way to the trowel of, of reconstruction. And I'm sorry for the length of this. In the beginning, God had not chosen Israel as his people because of their justice and righteousness then how can he reject them for injustice and unrighteousness? He had not chosen them because of of their justice and righteousness, but because of his love, Deuteronomy 4.37. Twice, Moses says, Do not say, all this has come to me because I was such a righteous people, because I was so strong. He He committed himself to Jacob's descendants long before they committed themselves to him. It was that commitment pledged to Abraham and reaffirmed to Isaac and Jacob that prompted the grace of restoration bestowed in Amos's closing words. Here are the promises of grace and restoration in chapter 9, 11 to 15. In that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Now he's turned salvation history into hope. That they may possess the house of the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord the God who does this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. And they will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land. They will not again be rooted up out of the land which I have given to them, says the Lord your God. 
that, that phrase, says the Lord your God, is often um, a kind of signature at the end. Are you with me here? So. Has it ever, has any of this, not, not this 11 to 15? Not this kind of prosperity. Has it ever happened? Not this kind of prosperity. Okay, so then it's future. Yeah. So it's got to be millennial. That's right. It's the, the, the fact that God has not yet fulfilled his word does not entail that he never will. It is simply that he is waiting for the time which is best and right. I wish it had been a long time ago, <laughs> but then maybe I would never have been here because I'm a man who needed redemption and I couldn't have been reborn as I am and participate in the promises of God. Yes? Oh, yes, beautiful. It's, it's, it's beautifully done, and we give it so little attention uh, when we go through the Bible. Yes, as Job, yes. Well, let's close with prayer. Father, uh, we must learn from this too. We are special. We are privileged. But that special character and that privileged condition entail for us great responsibility. We know and are taught in Scripture that you do discipline us, but thank, thank you, God, that you do not discipline us in justice. That just action you executed against your son, but you discipline us in love for righteousness. So, Father, um, in a little bit of fear, I pray, continue your disciplining work to produce in us the likeness of Christ. That we know you will do. We'd just like you to do it the easiest way possible and the shortest way possible. But indeed, in your wisdom, all that you do is the easiest and the shortest way to the goal that you have. So, Father, thank you that you have included us in your plan and given us hope. You have already brought us to despair, else we would not be sitting here today. But in that despair, you have given us great hope. And our hope must be in your plan not in the future of our nation. Our hope must be in your plan, not in the future of our employment. The hope must be in your plan, not in our bank account. So, Father, make us like Christ and make, it, make that our greatest goal, to be like him. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Yeah. Okay, when